0: It's Tuesday, June 8th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Since the January 6th Capitol riots, there have been a growing community of sedition hunters who comb over hours of video and thousands of photos in the hopes of identifying those that stormed the Capitol building. These internet sleuths have even set up their own infrastructure to help out with the effort. With facial recognition databases and websites to help track the suspects. The FBI appreciates the help and said that some of these tips have even been helpful in dozens of cases. David Yaffe Bellini, reporter at Bloomberg News, joins us for the Sedition Hunters looking for insurrectionists. Next, virtual brands are taking over your favorite food delivery apps. The pandemic has transformed the food industry and in a time when many restaurants were closing, food brands have proliferated. Big chains and even mom and pop restaurants are expanding the brands housed in their kitchens and are offering pizza, burgers, and especially chicken wings all coming from the same kitchen, just under different names. Uber Eats estimates that there are over 10,000 virtual brands on his platform alone. Josh Jezza, investigations editor at The Verge, joins us for the rise of virtual brands and how to spot them. Keep an eye out for all those chicken wing spots. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in
1: like nothing that the Justice Department has had to deal with ever in American history. And, you know, it strains the resources even of of the FBI. And so it makes sense that they would want the public's assistance in finding these
0: people. Joining us now is David Yaffe Bellany, reporter at Bloomberg News. Thanks for joining us, David. Thanks for having me on. I want to talk about an interesting story you wrote up about the growing community of self-proclaimed sedition hunters. So this is just a, a growing group of internet sleuths, really, who are pouring over hundreds of hours of video and photos, all related to the Capitol riots on January 6th. And these people are just looking for connections and, and trying to identify people, hopefully passing on that information to the FBI, and then you know they can make arrests and all that. I think uh, to date, the FBI has, has a little more, uh, a little over 400 arrests that they've made in all of this. You know, so these people are just kind of consumed with it, spending hours and hours pouring over this stuff, trying to find these people out. So, David, tell us a little bit more about it.
1: So it's really a kind of unlikely assortment of ordinary people around the country and around the world who were, you know, appalled by the events of January 6th and wanted to do something about it. I spoke to an out-of-work actor in, in Canada who in January started spending eight hours a day going through this footage, trying to kind of draw connections between different images and different videos, figure out, you know, which rioters had done what at what particular locations and sort of ultimately build up a portfolio of information that could be useful to the feds in their official investigation. And I talked to a a stay-at-home mom in the Pacific Northwest who is now kind of going through footage of a particular group of Proud Boys that marched on the Capitol to try to track their movements, figure out what they were doing as a way to kind of gather evidence of potential planning and coordination that, that could be useful to the official investigation. So it's really, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a broad swath of people who have all sorts of different motivations from kind of righteous indignation about what happened to a sort of nerdy fascination with the technical challenges of going through all this material are spearheading this effort.
0: The out-of-work actor in Canada kind of struck me as interesting. Obviously, he doesn't even live in this country, but he was so interested in what happened. I think his thing ended up being just wanting to know why. I think that was his big question. And it just kind of consumed him to the point where I think he spends like 40 hours a week pouring over this evidence. One of the questions I had is, how does the FBI and law enforcement officials react to these people kind of doing these investigations, let's say, connecting these dots? I know the FBI cited some of the uh, this stuff in when they made some of these arrests and all, but how do they feel overall about this?
1: Yeah, so the FBI really has nothing but good things to say about these groups. They're encouraging the public to come forward with tips. The FBI spokeswoman I talked to said that there have been dozens of cases in which these sorts of tips have kind of played a beneficial role. And and that makes sense. I mean, this is an investigation of unprecedented scope. It's like nothing that the Justice Department has had to deal with ever in American history. And, you know, it strains the resources even of, of the FBI. And so it makes sense that they would want the public's assistance in finding these people.
0: Now let's talk a little bit about what these so-called sedition hunters are doing. You know, I mentioned it briefly, they're looking at videos, looking at pictures, but what exactly are they doing? And they've because they've also set up their own infrastructure where they have websites with pictures and uh, pretty detailed stuff. I I kind of cruised through some of them and they have pictures uh, of the day of the event, social media pictures, you know, they're connecting a lot of dots there. So so walk me through what they're doing with it. I mean, to
1: me, that's what's really fascinating about this. I mean, we've seen internet crowdsourcing movements happen in the past after the Boston Marathon bombing, after Charlottesville, for instance. But I think this may be the first time that we've seen a crowdsourcing project that's been sustained over such a long period of time and whose members have kind of developed this internal infrastructure. So you've got facial recognition databases, which, of course, come with all sorts of civil liberties concerns, but these are places where a sedition hunter could drop a photo of somebody that they saw at the riot and then pull up other images in which the same person appeared as a way of kind of cataloging what the person did on that day. You've got interactive maps where you can sort of click on specific GPS, um, GPS coordinates and find the footage that was taken at that particular location close to the Capitol. There are galleries of sort of perp photos, basically, each of which has its own kind of distinctive hashtag as a way of sort of (laughs) organizing these images so that members of the online community communicate about a specific person whose name they might not know or who they want to avoid naming, you know, for fear of a kind of misidentification. So it's this really sort of elaborate setup that's, that's evolved over the past few months.
0: Yeah, I, I definitely I went to seditionhunters.org which you mentioned in your article and and that is one of the things I noticed is the hashtags that they have for cataloging people, vague descriptions of a person with, you know, coupled with other things they had lion mane insider, who's a guy with long white hair, which was kind of funny, serious forehead, airhead boy, you know, just different names just to kind of help people move along through it, but they had like I said, just tons of photos and multiple angles. From videos and other social media things where you can clearly see that it's the same person in different parts of that capital. They did have some high profile misfires, which seems to happen with a lot of this stuff. You know, tons of people working on something. There are some mistakes made along the way. They falsely accuse some people, right?
1: So, the most famous example of a kind of a, a, an internet crowdsourcing project going wrong is probably the, the Boston Marathon bombing where you had Reddit users misidentify a suspect. And you know, to their credit, this time around, a lot of the Twitter accounts that have been mobilizing these January 6th efforts have really tried to steer their followers in the right direction and encourage them to submit identifications to journalists or to the FBI rather than making public proclamations about who did what. But it's impossible to control everybody. And yeah, we've had misfires. I mean, there was a, a retired firefighter in Chicago who was misidentified pretty early on. Chuck Norris was uh, misidentified at, at, at one point various people whose lookalikes happen to be there and, you know, were sort of falsely accused online. And obviously this is a big risk. And I spoke to some sort of more established open research groups who kind of expressed frustration that this was still happening. But, you know, like I said, this is a this is a more mature effort than we've seen in the past. And certainly at this point, you know, there are rules of the road that these groups and individual users have, have established that are designed to prevent those types of mistakes from happening.
0: Tell me a little bit about the mental toll that has been taken on some of these sedition hunters because they're pouring through hours of video, lots of yelling, name callings, you know, lots of bad stuff that was happening on that day. And some of them take a break from the project at a t- at certain times because, you know, it's a little too much for them.
1: Yeah, look, I mean, we've all seen this footage. It's disturbing to watch. It was disturbing to watch small snippets of it on the nightly news. And you can imagine how disturbing it is to be constantly watching this on a loop for months on end. You know, interestingly, a lot of the Sedition Hunters I spoke to said that they actually found the audio more disturbing than the visuals, that that kind of angry cacophony of yelling and swearing became too much for them, and they started you know, watching the videos on mute. You know, I talked to one guy who basically plays classical music in the background, so I'll have Tchaikovsky on while he's watching the Proud Boys march on the Capitol. And, you know, there are there are others who've had to take breaks from doing this work just because they thought it was sort of messing with their heads. And, you know, it's definitely it's definitely onerous and certainly does take a psychological toll.
0: David Yaffe Bellany, reporter at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me.
2: Kind of independently early in the pandemic, a lot of restaurants said, you know, we need extra revenue. The kitchen's sitting idle. We'll launch a Wings brand. And then you have the large franchises that got on board. And then you have these branding companies that come along and say, you know, we have 10 different virtual Wings brands that you can put up and try to get some of that Wings traffic.
0: Joining us now is Josh Jezza, Investigations Editor at The Verge. Thanks for joining us, Josh. Thanks for having me. Wanted to uh, check in on the food industry, the restaurant industry, and kind of what's going on. Something that we've seen start to develop before the pandemic, get really accelerated by the pandemic, and now kind of looking at the current state of things and into the future. And we're talking about virtual brands in the restaurant industry For a lot of time, we had been hearing about ghost kitchens, which is a very similar concept, but these virtual brands seem to be taking off. And if you are ordering stuff off of any food delivery apps, I'm sure you've noticed an increase in chicken wings, you know, specifically. Uh, We'll get to that in a moment. But Josh, start us off with this concept of virtual brands and how it uh, relates to ghost kitchens.
2: So a ghost kitchen, which is sort of the better known concept, is basically a restaurant that only does delivery. And so it's kind of like a commissary kitchen, and you might have a couple of different restaurants working out of it. And the idea is that they'll be more efficient, have lower overhead, and be able to operate in this very tight environment of food delivery. A virtual brand is related, but it can be in a traditional restaurant. So you might remember last year, Chuck E. Cheese Launched a brand called Piscali's Pizza and Wings. It was not clear at the time that that was Chuck E. Cheese, but people were ordering from it, discovering it was actually Chuck E. Cheese. And so that Piscali's was a example of a virtual brand, something that a brick-and-mortar restaurant puts up on delivery apps in order to get new customers.
0: Tell me a little bit about Ty Brown and a restaurant called The Bergen. Because you focus on him a lot in your article about how he expanded through all these virtual brands. I mean, you know, he started off as one restaurant, but when all is said and done, he kept adding so many other brands to his thing. I mean, he was running, I don't know, 11 restaurants, maybe more out of just the one.
2: Ty launched his restaurant sort of just before the pandemic and got approached pretty quickly by one of these thirst. Kind of virtual brand companies. In his case, I think the first one was Future Foods. And so they offer restaurant owners a uh, menu of brands to choose from. And, you know, it sounded like a great deal. You know, he's already sort of a takeout spot. He's making burgers and wings. Future Foods says we have these other burgers and wings brands. We'll run them. When an order comes through, you just fill the order. You get a cut of the revenue. So he did it and, you know, it worked well, sort of helped him. Get on his feet in the restaurant business, and then he kept adding more and more. Sort of these other companies launched. They started recruiting more aggressively, and so when we last spoke, he was running a dozen or so brands out of this yeah. one restaurant, opening other restaurants that he was going to open with also a dozen brands. And he's a big fan of the concept. You know, he it's, it's instant instant sales for him. He's been quite happy with it.
0: Yeah, so uh, I, you had a list of them, and I just need to run them down so people kind of, kind of understand how many different concepts you can run out of the one kitchen. So he had Chef Burger, Burger Mansion, Hay Burger, Mr. Beast Burger, and then Wings. He had Chicks, Wild Wild Wings, Crispy Wings, Killer Wings, Fire Belly Wings, you know, the list goes on and on. And that's also part of the magic, I guess you can say, about these uh, virtual brands is a lot of it has to do with search optimization. You go onto an app and you're searching for product type not necessarily product name so you're looking for burgers you're looking for wings you're looking for pizza and then uh, you know whatever else you know the menu and everything kind of entices you to pick one at that point so that's also one of the things that's uh, really key to a lot of these virtual brands is the names of these brands are, are pretty i guess familiar enough to know what you're getting but generic enough just to show up on the search engine
2: the optimization is a big part of it If you think about a a restaurant like Denny's or Applebee's, one of these big chains that have started getting into it, you know, they have wings on the menu, but you don't go to them for wings necessarily. So they'll launch something cosmic wings or neighborhood wings. And now they're showing up when people search for wings on the delivery apps. And so, yeah, so Tyza restaurants, they all, I actually found him because I was just scanning Grubhub and saw one of those wing businesses, you know, after you've been reading about these businesses for a while, they all start to sound the same. And so I think it was a wing dynasty that popped up and said, that seems like it's probably a virtual brand and searched (laughs) the address and came up with all these others that he was operating out of that location.
0: As a restaurateur, business owners, these are opportunities for them to obviously make more money, get names out there and keep afloat, especially during a time like the pandemic. On the consumer side, we're uh, looking for things to eat. We're looking for fast delivery. You don't know what you're getting sometimes. You don't know where, who you're actually ordering from. You see a name, you see a product you want, and you're going for it. So one of the truest tells of all of this, as you kind of mentioned, were Wings. Wings are, are experiencing this kind of gold rush moment right now where it's so easy to do. everybody's doing it, and you're going to see a lot of these things popping up on your delivery apps.
2: That's right. Yeah, Wings. Uh, You know, a lot of restaurants made wings already. If they didn't, they're pretty easy to spin up. Uh, And so kind of independently early in the pandemic, a lot of restaurants said, you know, we need extra revenue. The kitchen's sitting idle we will launch a wings brand. And then you have the large franchises that got on board. And then you have these branding companies that come along and say, you know, we have 10 different virtual wings brands that you can put up and try to get some of that wings traffic. And so wing sales have really been through the roof. It's been kind of a bright spot for the industry. One of the stats I heard from an analyst was that, well, restaurant visits declined by about 11% the period roughly spanning the pandemic. Wing sales went up 10%. You know, Prices have gone up. Wings orders have gone up. Everything uh, has gone up partly because all of these restaurants have launched wing brands.
0: I did want to mention the other side of things. You know, some restaurants and restaurateurs don't like this trend for a number of reasons. One, the fees associated with the apps can get pretty high sometimes. So they're losing some money there. The other part of this, as you mentioned, there's these virtual brand kind of companies that are pitching out these companies to restaurants and things like that. You know, there's some in the industry that are worried that these Uber Eats, DoorDash, which have these kind of arms of their business coordinating these types of things, you know, might start opening up their own kitchens and their own restaurants and kind of uh, you know uh, taking out the mom and pop shops and, and regular restaurant tours.
2: there are several concerns that restaurateurs have, and the first one is sort of just the logistical issue that you know it sometimes it sounds good, too good to be true. you know if you have ten wings brands uh, and everyone starts ordering wings from you, you can't actually keep up. You have to hire more people, it becomes more expensive. maybe your main operation could suffer your uh, sort of in-house dining. Uh, when you're trying to fill all these delivery orders. And then the other is this sort of larger strategic fear, which is that in the same way that Amazon competes with some of the sellers on its marketplace by finding what's popular and then making its own version at lower costs, that the big delivery apps will start making their own virtual brands like this or promoting restaurants that pay higher fees and host one of their sort of uh, company-produced virtual brands. Right now, the collaboration has been increasing between the brand companies and the apps. It hasn't quite reached that level yet. But you have Grubhub promoting virtual brand companies, trying to recruit restaurant owners. And so restaurant owners who are more skeptical, the delivery apps are kind of watching that warily.
0: You know, we had been seeing this trend of farm-to-table, locally sourced ingredients, keeping it, you know, very chef-centric even. And now things with the delivery apps have kind of changed that. As I mentioned, you don't know who you're ordering from, just that you're getting wings and you're getting these uh, flavors and stuff, or the same thing for burgers or anything. So the trends of these restaurants are, are changing in this digital world, which is interesting to think about. I think
2: it really raises some questions about what a restaurant is or will be. You know, yeah, you it feels a lot more like e-commerce, where you don't exactly know where it was made or where it came from what you care about is how quickly it will get there and the price and so you end up with these situations where you order wings and they're well reviewed and they'll get there fast but maybe it's a brand name that was invented by some company in silicon valley and it's being run out of a local restaurant that's also running 10 different brands in addition to its local uh or to its uh main you know dining business you don't really know where it came from
0: josh jezza investigations editor at the verge thank you very much for joining us thanks for having me that's it for today join us on social media at daily dive pod on both twitter and instagram leave us a comment give us a rating and tell us the stories that you're interested in follow us on iheart radio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.